0: now I present to you a deeper dive on the Desert Rat figure and concept, as well as some more questions and answers. So the Desert Rat is, um, as some people have figured out, is the figure that is shipping in February for the Action Figure of the Month Club. Um, There is very little leftover inventory, which will likely go very quickly once it's on sale. Um, There will be additional colorways of the Desert Rat in the future but um, no plans to sort of reissue his classic color scheme, as you guys have now seen. The character of the Desert Rat is um, something I've wanted to do for a long time, and it's really a confluence of different things that I'm really into that gave birth to him. I guess the, the most apparent influence um, is really the Action Figure UK line, which came out around the same time as G.I. Joe, and eventually uh, it was put out by a company called Palatoy, and eventually the American G.I. Joe figures were sort of integrated into the line. Um, But in this sort of initial year or two of the line, they actually had three and three quarter inch figures, which were, you know, not made by Hasbro, not designed by Hasbro, were entirely, you know, a sort of uh, British um, project, and as such it has these really crazy cool unique characters like the uh sas uh, that sort of classic gas mask swat team looking guy um and uh my personal favorite the desert rat which was a sort of uh you know a guy who looked not unlike um maybe a member of the french ford legion mixed with dusty from gi joe uh so i automatically loved him um I I may be one of the only, you know, one of a handful of US-based Action Force UK um, aficionados, but it is definitely a line worth looking into. Uh, Really, really great, bizarre characters in that line. Um, And, uh, you know, you can find some of them relatively on the cheap. A lot of times they're mislabeled on eBay. Uh, They do not have the same articulation as the Real American Hero figures, Um, They're probably closer to Kenner Star Wars. And I think that's kind of what Palatoy was sort of looking to recreate. I I believe Palatoy were also the distributor of the Kenner Star Wars figures, if I'm not mistaken. Um, So definitely a worthwhile line to check out. The second biggest influence for the desert rat is um, a little film called Lawrence of Arabia, which I saw very late in my life, but it is truly... Just, you know, one of the best films ever made. A a great piece of cinema. Um, Really evocative. uh, Fantastic, fantastic film. Fantastic story. The man who it is based on um, is really worth looking up because he was absolutely insane. Um, And the movie, you know, does a pretty good job of depicting that. And is not, you know, not terribly... Uh, overblown. A lot of his exploits are, you know, pretty well closely captured. Uh, truly a remarkable guy. And the sort of setting uh, of World War I and, you know, the desert campaigns of the British Empire played a huge influence in what I sort of had never seen depicted in a three and three quarter inch action figure and that I sorely wanted to have happen. The actual name Desert Rat is a bit of a misnomer because um, the Desert Rats, which refer to the 7th Armored Division of the UK, uh, that was kind of like a, you know, a tank-based uh, tank sort of unit. And um, Desert Rat, as he's depicted in this action figure line, is actually much closer to the LA, LRDG. Um, who also had a very cool sort of animal logo that had a scorpion holding a steering wheel. Um, So if you think of the look of this character with his shorts, his spats, long beard, um, you know, kind of a uh, cloaked headwear, um, that's closer to to the sort of few photos that we have of the the, uh, SAS's LRDG. And um, that's kind of where I borrowed the visual language of the figure from. Because I would, I would always see, there's this great photo of these Jeeps lined up and, uh, you know, all these British soldiers sitting behind the Jeeps with their machine guns ready to roll. And they all have beards and scowls, but they're all wearing shorts and probably sandals. So it was such a weird juxtaposition. And I always thought that was such a, you know, interesting image and look. And so counterintuitive to what we think of as soldiers you know we i sort of grew up in the 80s so i think of you know commando or rambo or these super masculine you know uh bare-shirted <laughs> uh super soldiers and that's really not what real warfare is it is you know it's just regular people and i always thought that that image um of those soldiers really sort of captured some kind of realism that we've kind of missed out on. Of course, the galvanizing force of getting this figure done was really Battlefield 4. Uh, I always liked the stuff I had always thought about, um, you know, these moments in histories. I'd always wanted to do this character, but it didn't really come to life for me until uh, Battlefield 4, which is a, a phenomenal game, and it's based in World War One. I. I believe it's the only first-person shooter that is. And the level of detail that they went into and ingenuity with that game, you know, the, the way that they sort of took uh, mechanisms we take for granted in gaming, such as, uh, you know, blips on a radar. Like, well, it, you know, it wasn't really radar-in-wide use back then, if at all, so how do you translate that into a World War One gaming experience? They came up with this elegant solution of having a flare gun that sort of... <clears throat> would give away enemy positions. And, you know, the, the game is full of these very thoughtful ideas that kind of um, tweak the tropes that we're used to in gaming, but uh, view it through the lens of, you know, being alive in in 1914 to 1918 or whatever the uh, time period is. Um, so I highly recommend that game, and, and that was really the rocket fuel that made me decide... Um, all right, I got to get this figure out big time. And actually, I'd have to go back and check, but I think that the initial sculpt was started before Battlefield 4 came out. And then as that game came out, and I sort of became obsessed with it, um, you know, myself and Erwin, we sort of uh, were reinvigorated with it to get it done and and put it out there. Um, Initially, it just didn't have a place in Knights of the Slice because it was so oddball and had nothing to do with, you know... Toy line, and I don't think I think I just had gotten Vector Jump out. I had not yet done Rift Killer, and back then I didn't have the same fan base. I didn't have a Patreon. I didn't have the means to sort of just tool any figure I wanted. It was really something that uh, you know took. Uh, I I just basically had to wait and see, and it wouldn't be until you know November of 2018. That uh, we actually got to start bringing him to life with the Action Figure of the Month the Kickstarter. So the the signature piece of the Desert Rat figure is really um, the Matt Dowdy head, you know, and I think that that has huge crossover appeal for anybody who's collected Glios. Um, I, I'm doing this podcast today because the first figures of the Desert Rat have popped up online from a collector, and there's going to be more coming in the next couple days. So I thought it was a good time to kind of Recap, you know, what went into this. And the Desert Rat itself didn't have a life until I matched it with Matt Dowdy's head. And I sort of had, I hired Ann Suck to do Matt Dowdy's head in anticipation for Designer Con. This must have been three years ago at this point. And uh, I just wanted to do it, get a couple of resin copies made, and give it as a gift to Matt. And, um, it just sort of, I, we must have been messing around with that and the desert wrap body. And for anybody that knows Matt Dowdy, his signature look is wearing shorts all season. I mean, it is, it's, you know, one degree below zero here today. It's probably colder up where Dowdy is. There's no doubt he's wearing shorts. It's just a, it's a signature look for him and it's not going to change. So I think the impetus, the, the sort of Genesis point came from, okay, well, we got to put Doughty's head on this body because it's wearing shorts. It's, it's the only, uh, you know, it's the only outfit that makes sense. And that kind of stuck. It kind of became this magical moment. And so, um, the figure ended up having three heads. We have this sort of gas mask head, which I think is very cool, and, and hopefully you guys do as well. Then we have, uh, you know, the kind of head wrapping head, which um, is based on actually a Rex Gannon figure, but... The identity of that head will be revealed later on. And I don't think I'm going to keep it as Rex Cannon. I got another idea I might explore with it. Uh, And then, of course, the Doughty head. And I I really think it sort of... uh, It just took on a new life when it became an homage to Matt Dowdy, As opposed to just this obscure figure that I sort of, you know, wanted to make. The um, creative... Story for the Desert Rat uh, goes way back, pre knights of the Slice, and um, when I did some vector relic crate drops with resin figures a few months back, maybe even might have been a year ago, I don't know. Um, there was a you know resin hard copy release of this figure that included this small black and white comic of the Desert Rat, and um, the character itself is named Grayson, and he's uh, English, and he sort of fights in World War One. He starts off in the Seine in uh, France in trench warfare, and then sort of, uh, you know, gets kind of exiled into uh, the desert campaign for World War One. Um, which in World War One and World War Two, they would sort of send, <laughs> uh, you know, less competent people um, to those frontiers. It was, it could be seen as a sort of punishment. Um, so, uh, you know, that was the idea that this this was a character that served in World War I and then was called up and sort of served again in World War II. So he was in both, uh, you know, a, a whole bunch of different campaigns. And then at some point sort of enters the Vector and, you know, becomes almost like a godlike figure. He's able to survive in the, in the Vector for some reason without the normal armor that's needed or technology. And uh, just starts to be able to somewhat master time and space and, and, um, you know, that lets him travel sort of wherever he wants to. And I realize I'm giving away way too much actually as I'm saying this, (laughs) but that was the, um, you know, the basic parameters of it. And I haven't, I have yet to reprint the black and white. It's just really a two page comic that sort of shows the desert rat in action. Um, But a couple lucky fans out there have it, and I'll probably add it to, you know, some sort of print copy of something at some point in the future. Um, So, yeah, there you have it, Desert Rats' uh, narrative history. The uh, gun he comes with is a Mauser, uh, also called a broom handle 9mm pistol. Um, The Mauser is, you know, one of my favorite-looking guns of all time. Uh, That's the gun that they sort of based Han Solo's blaster on. Uh, it was also my go-to weapon in Resident Evil 4, was it? It was the one where he was in Europe. Let me look this up right now. But they they had a version of that uh, called the Red 9. And it was really like an endgame weapon. Um, yeah, Resident Evil 4. You purchase it from the merchant. It was sort of like you wouldn't get it till the very end of the game, but then you would replay the game with the Red 9. And it was just such an awesome... Powerful gun, and it had the wooden stock. And uh, I always wanted. There's been a few Mauser pistols that have been made. Some, most of them are oversized. There was a great like Jinro figure, I think revoltec made, that had a Mauser pistol, but it was enormous. Um, and there have been a few in the kind of four-inch Marvel line, but none that had a wooden stock or sort of like really scratched the itch. So this uh, this was a gun I knew had to be included with this figure and uh i'm really glad it did and it looks great with all of the night of the slice figures so that's your little peek into some of the stories behind the desert rat i'm super happy that everybody's uh should be getting him in the next couple days i would allow you know a couple extra days for delivery since it's so crazy cold out there i know the delivery people are having some problems out there uh so with that done let's get into some q a's that i didn't get to And the first one comes from Mechanicoid. He says, I love Lost Projects. Are there any ideas that just never came to fruition or changed and mutated into something different? And do any artifacts remain of these ghosts? I I would say, like, that's every project and property for me. Um, There is one that I'm interested in in sort of putting out a PDF of, uh, probably for free this year. And that's this uh, project that never got off the ground called Shatterfront. That was a comic book me and my friends drew when we were it might have been grades No, I guess it was middle school and um, we've worked on it over the cup you know over the years and chipped away at it and had some good artists do some interpretations and never could really pull it together and I don't think it's ever going to happen for real but I think it's an interesting artifact and um, you know there's some significance to sharing it this year so. I'm going to try to uh, get that done and put it out there. And I think one or two of those characters might lend themselves well to, you know, a figure in the future. And I'd like there to be some context for that if that ever does happen. So um, I think that one, uh, you know, has a good shot. There's another brand I have uh, that I've worked on, you know, just as long as anything else called Marley and Harley. And it's basically a... A stoner dude and a german hitman who befriend each other and it was very bad to be honest with you but i found i think i found an interesting hook for it and um you know now that gavin mackey is sort of working part-time and chipping away at the creative side of things we may we may have something there at some point which could be interesting um and then, you know, as far as, like, ideas changing and mutating, I think, I've talked about this before, but the Mahler Gauntlet on the Old Knight is a part that is being reused, that was originally created for Hob. So I think that, you know, the, the very nature of every idea that I bring to market is exactly that, it is a mutation of several other ideas. You know, there's nothing that is uh, really of pure new creation. You know, not for anything I do. Um, But, you know, there's a million stories like that within my work, and, you know, hopefully we get to tackle all of them. Clone Tommy, a.k.a. Tommy Khan, asks, Coke or Pepsi? Uh, I don't drink soda anymore. I don't drink any sugary beverages. It's very sad. I used to love, 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 love drinking cans of soda. That was my go-to drug. I would wake up and just start pounding cans of soda, um, I think I was more of a Pepsi guy back then. I still have cravings for soda. Oh God, like like you wouldn't believe. I, I wanted to eat the, the cola night when I got him because he looked so delicious. Um, yeah, it's not easy. I miss it dearly, but I just kind of feel like shit when I have sugar. So I'm better off for it and I actually get to sleep at night now. So what a surprise. Derek asks favorite figures from the toy biz era and how did 90 toys influence night of the slice so to answer the latter first i mean the 90s are nights of the slice right and the late 80s i this i i can't even say how they influence it because they are it you know the one of the premises is that This was a line that should have existed back then, but just didn't, you know? Or it was maybe rediscovered. Or maybe it did exist in an alternate dimension. Who knows? But yeah, obviously, the the 90s are flowing through Knights of the Slice. And um, I would say also, like, a big earmark for that is uh, neon weapons, which I like doing. You know, some of the accessory kits have come out already that have shown you we have bright colors, and I like that. I like injecting bright, nonsensical accessories back into toys these days. To answer the second part, my favorite figure from the Toy Biz era is probably Ninja Wolverine, which was based on the Joe Mad style. Uh, him and the Sabretooth were just amazing figures. I want to say it was a Phil Ramirez sculpt. I'm actually I'm going to be seeing Jesse Falcon, the creator of Marvel Legends, and really, the person we owe the, the biggest debt to In terms of modern action figures um i'm gonna be seeing him at toy fair we're hopefully going to sit down and do a podcast together which should kick off a sort of history of toy biz feature and um i'll i'll be sure to ask him but i think that was phil ramirez phil and jesse sort of worked on a ton of stuff and most of the better figures were by them and um yeah i think it's very easy for me it's it's that uh wolverine and actually the tunic that is now out for Knights of the Slice, it's available in the store, is uh, based on the tunic or the sort of gi that that ninja wolverine comes with. I mean, it had everything. It had a removable mask. It had a cool pose. It was the bone claw wolverine, which was a thing happening back then. Um, It had cloth goods. It had kind of a cool hunched over pose. And it had a ton of accessories. Just really a flawless figure. I highly recommend it. Omnirez says, what's your all-time best flea market find? Um, It wasn't in a flea market per se. It was in a sort of thrift store. But I found a complete, entirely complete, um, Dungeon and Dragons playset. The Fortress of Fangs playset. I actually had to pause and look up the correct name. Um, But for some reason, it was in this store. The box was there. It was put together there was not a single piece missing from it. And that's really hard for the Fortress of Fangs. There's lots of little pieces. There's a treasure chest, there's little stepping stones. They tend to get lost. This thing was mint condition. And I think I paid 20 bucks for it. Um, I would imagine I could probably sell that for probably three or $400 today, but I won't. It's, you know, I dearly love that thing. So um, that's easily, yeah, I would say that's my best score. What would be your most influential art movement to your art practice outside of creating Knights of the Slice? Um, I'm not sure if this answers the question, but I would say that the best thing I did for myself was to start um, doing a sketchbook every month. And I, I don't quite meet that goal anymore, but at a certain point in my mid-20s, I was like, I'm not doing anything creatively with my life. Uh, I have an unfulfilling job. I have an unfulfilling relationship. I very desperately want to be an artist and a storyteller and get my ideas out there, but I do not have the technical skill to do so. So I just decided instead of being good at anything, I would just fill up books. You know, that would be my medium. I would just complete a book every month. And I did that for quite a few years. You know, I've posted some photos of my bookshelf that's entirely uh chronological sketchbooks and i'm actually now overflowing i i'm gonna have to start a new shelf but um i think that was the most important thing to do and i would encourage everybody to do that and i would say that you know a lot of the times artists or people who are creative don't become artists because they can't finish an idea or they, they don't have a final product to share with anybody. And I reject that notion completely. I don't actually think being an artist is about the finished work that you share. I think it's about the actual craft and making bad art as much as possible and filling up volumes of bad art. And um, I just kind of did that for several years and it made me a fantastic artist. It got me to sort of work with a deadline. It got me motivated. Uh, and I became so much better at uh, updating. At, sorry, sorry, at iterating ideas until eventually I had ideas good enough that could be shared. Beagle Knight asks, "How did you come across the Spiral Zone figures, both the Tonka and Japanese figures, since it was a huge influence on the Vector Jump figures?" Uh, oh, and what was the process for developing the old knight? So. I came across Zone figures, obviously through the Tonka line which I collected when I was a kid. I loved the idea of cloth goods and these kind of, you know, almost doll-like figures with lots of gear. I was immediately taken to it. It would take me several years, probably a decade, until I found out that this was actually based on a line that was made by Bandai and was from Japan. And it would then take me another 10 years to um, own any of them. The, the Japanese line is incredibly hard to come by. They're incredibly expensive. They don't pop up that often. And they're kind of flimsy. They're very thin plastic, and there's a lot of little pieces that tend to get lost. So it's it's an, it's an a frustrating line to collect. And I got to be honest, they're not the best figures when you get them and put them together. They look amazing, but there's a lot of flaws in the doll body that they used that really prevent it from being a fulfilling sort of figure you know i i actually think the tonka ones are better because they're sturdier and you can kind of play with them and bang them around without them breaking instantly um so yeah that was you know the biggest piece of influence for the vector jump um and i you know i i recommend both the lines if you can find them they're they're interesting from a historical standpoint they they have a lot of great ideas that The Japanese ones in particular are very ambitious. And, you know, they don't quite deliver by today's standards. But I think think a spiral Zone, and to me it is the genre that I have deemed uh, future perfect. And it's kind of hard to pin down future perfect. Some people call it real type. But it was basically a quasi-futuristic, quasi-military look to largely Japanese properties in the late 70s and early 80s. Um, so spiral obviously, part of it. Some of the Gundam uh, universe has that future perfect aesthetic. Um, you know, artists like, um, uh, oh god, <laughs> Mobius a little bit, but not uh, not as much as like, uh, oh boy, I can't remember his name. He's alive still. Sid Mead, thank you, there it is. Sid Mead is a good uh, cultural touchstone for that. Um, so yeah, I, I do love that line. It's definitely worth looking at. It's it's really fantastic. And then the process for developing the Old Knight. Um, I mean, I wanted to do a medieval toy line forever. I actually pitched Play Along Toys when I was just starting off as an unpaid intern. I was like, we got armies of Middle Earth, we should do a generic Knight line Here are the knights I would have in here. We could do catapults. We could do siege weaponry. And they, you know, they were very kind to listen to me, but obviously the pitch got turned down. So, um, you know, I think it's a a figure I've always wanted to do and always, even as far back as, you know, the Jazzwares years, I've always been iterating on the idea of knight figures. Um, And then I just started to seed... The Knights of Slice storyline with there being knights in the past. And we have, you know, I think in issue two, we have this flashback with this suit of armor that shows a kind of medieval knight. So I was priming the pump always to get there. And then, um, you know, I think Erwin and I started developing that sculpt. Uh, Must have been at least a year and a half ago, maybe even two years ago. And it took a long time, but, you know, it was definitely worth it. It made its debut this past summer, November, for DCON. And I did see another question. I forget who asked it exactly, but they asked... um, Oh, here it is. I have one random question. It was Chris Lucero. Uh, Why the first Old Knight dropped was all red? Uh, I'm not going to answer that question, but I think that fans of a certain title know why that figure was clear and all red. And I'll let the other fans sort of um, clue us into what that homage is all about. Another interesting point, uh, hopping back to the development of the Old Knight, it was actually supposed to come with the Cyber Mama torso and head. Uh, The Old Knight was going to be designated as female, and every figure was going to ship with the torso and the head. Um, We couldn't sort of reach an agreement on... The look and the feel of the female portion of it. So instead, Doughty, uh jam-packed it with accessories like the sword, the belt, the mauler gauntlet, and the hand cannon. Actually, the hand cannon was my idea that uh, Irwin sculpted. And so instead of having the female parts, it, it um, got all these extra accessories. I still do refer and designate certain styles of the Old Knight to be female. Um, you know, some people have expressed dismay about that. I don't care if that bothers you. Like, it's a toy. You know, simply decide it's not a female if that's a problem for you. Um, but I do look forward to the day when the Cyber Mama is done and I can finally have the sort of figure I was envisioning oh so long ago. Living Laser asks What's your favorite TMNT villain? That's very easy. It's Leatherhead? Is it Leatherface or Leatherhead? Leatherhead. The alligator, And he's my favorite because the first comic book I ever bought was his Archie debut, and his first name is Jess. So what else do you need to know? Also, uh, neon-colored shotgun accessory, which I loved. And, you know, I'd be lying if I said that the uh, shotgun in the accessory pack that's currently available is not a slight sort of nod to that shotgun, which I gave to every other toy I had. Like, I remember the Hasbro Cops figures always had that Leatherhead shotgun. It was just such an awesome piece. Quick 545 asks, will Nice the Slice expand into pizza delivery? No, but I would definitely do a quick service restaurant licensing deal if anyone wants us as their mascots. I can't imagine why you would. Drew Wise asks, what are some of the coolest bootleg toys, unique garage kits you've seen, you've heard of, or seen? Um, the coolest garage kits I own uh, would be stuff from Wonderfest Japan, which is a crazy, crazy show. It is the ultimate show for toy collectors. I should probably do a separate pod just on that show and having gone there last year. It's really fantastic. Um, But I would say uh, the Dark Souls resin figure kit of Oscar, uh, Oscar of Astor um, that is the craziest kit I've seen or owned. It is really fantastic. I still have not finished it. It is so expensive and so delicate. I sort of, every couple months, do a little bit of work on it. Do a little bit of painting or gluing. Um, still not put together. I'm terrified to finish it. Uh, also, honorable mention goes to a company called Geek Life from Japan, you should check out. They did an Altered Beast 3-pack of the different animal transformations, and it is fantastic. That's another kit I'm, like, deathly afraid to finish, but enjoy every couple months sort of tweaking and, you know, chipping away at. That's the phrase of this uh, podcast, chipping away at. Every time I say that, you have to take a drink. PJC88Figures asks, any plans to use blister packs for Knights of the Slice? It would be nice to have... Figure checklists, images on the back and art on the front. Um, no, no plans to, uh, to to use a blister card means that I, my entire air freight plan collapses under cost. Because I can ship 100 figures in a single cardboard case in a, a poly bag. Um, if I were to add blister cards, I could ship at most 12 figures. So that would mean more cartons. That would mean more pallets. That would mean higher shipping costs. That would mean, you know, uh, our unit cost would, would probably end up going for $30 for you guys. So, you know, Nice of Slice is a, is a economical line. It's meant to be accessible. It's meant to, you know, get you the most value for the smallest amount of money possible. And, um, you know, we do have carded figures when it comes to the high-end nice of the Synth by Thousand Toys. And, you know, I think that's an appropriate price point to have the blister card uh, presentation. That being said, we do have a collaboration coming out later this year that will feature one style on a blister card through a third party that we're working with. And there'll be some news about that in the next couple weeks, probably after, um, long after Chinese New Year ends. And finally, the Apache Ninja asked, what's it like being such a massive legend? Let me tell you about being a massive legend. I get up, uh, I let my dog out, uh, I make coffee, and bring it to my girlfriend while she's in bed, and then I take out the garbage. I bring in the garbage cans. I, uh, I'm i the only one in this house that can scoop out the food particles in the sink. I'm typically the loader and unloader of the dishwasher. I uh, will puncture a bag of salt with a knife, sling it over my shoulder, and go and salt the driveway, because I am such a legend. I do menial tasks all the time and um, you know it's a very Calvinistic existence it's uh, no pleasure all hard work and that's how you get to legendary status my friends so with that I'm going to end this to I'm going to go down to the basement and start putting some action figures into Tupperware bins my favorite pastime in the world we're going to talk soon keep posting your action figure of the month club photos when the goods arrive give me some unboxing videos that's what I really want to see And uh, the only thing left to say is Pete's out.